What's up, horror movie fans? We've got two more March Mad Men matchups for you here in part two of this episode. My Bloody Valentine 3D, a seven seed, goes up against Wes Craven's New Nightmare. See, I, I didn't say Wes on that one. Uh, which is, of course, a 10 seed, so that's an evenly matched battle. And Psycho 2, a 4 seed, goes up against The Fun House. Let's give it a listen. Okay, well, I just cracked a, a Stella Artois, I know, bringing out the, the heavy hitters, the big guns. Uh, did anyone else reload while we took that brief break? I actually, it occurred to me that I, uh, much like Rich was drinking uh, birthday beers from me, I am drinking a birthday beer from you, which is also what that uh, Parat was. Oh, yeah. uh, unfortunately, this is a, a Belgian blonde ale whose name I cannot possibly pronounce, um, but uh, it's, it's lovely. So thank you. Well, you are quite welcome, my friend. So uh, let's move on to an unspeakably bad film called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. But first, the higher seed is My Bloody Valentine, which I believe uh, Rich is going to tell us about. My Bloody Valentine 3D. Well... This was a 2009 slasher. Uh, it was directed and co-edited by Patrick. I'm going to say it's Lussier. We'll say it's Lussier for the purpose of my review. Um, it was directed and co-edited by Patrick Lussier, who is the editor of New Nightmare. Uh, you have to love these happy accidents. Um, he was also the editor on Scream 1, 2, and 3 on Mimic. And, just to tie it all back, Halloween H2O. He's a prolific film editor who didn't do a whole lot of directing. He mostly went on to do television and some uh, some horror sequels uh, later on in his career. So this was kind of his, his big bid. But here he is against his frequent collaborator, Wes Craven. It was written by Todd Farmer and Zane Smith, and it was filmed on location in Pennsylvania. And it looks like it. It was released in January 16 of 2009, and our good friends at Lionsgate, the people who brought you such classics as Midnight Meat Train, um, were behind this whole thing. This is a movie that follows 10 years after a wronged minor, and that's minor with an E, Harry Warden wakes up from a coma and slaughters a whole bunch of people. 10 years later, a bunch of townies in Nowheresville, Pennsylvania, plagued by a serial killer in mining gear on Valentine's Day. And meanwhile, Tom, the son of a miner implicated in the mining accident that drove Harry insane, is back in town to sell the family mine and rekindle his relationship with the new sheriff's wife. In terms of impact of this film, uh, let's talk about personal impact first. I saw this thing. I don't remember if it was there or not, but uh, I saw this movie at the Universal City Walk in 3D in the theater as it was meant to be seen. I also am relatively certain that I went to the Universal Halloween Horror Nights maze of My Bloody Valentine, which I perhaps enjoyed more than the film itself. My, my memory of it you know, before this was that the 
3D felt a little bit kind of like tacked on, but I mean, Jesus, what 3D movie doesn't feel like that? So I think it's that's not necessarily a, a fair bar to to judge it by, you know. But ultimately, I'd say that this this film struck me sort of like somewhere in the in the middle of my interest level at the time in terms of horror movies. In terms of like its success level, uh, it it you know it, it's came in at number three, like not bad for a, for a horror movie this caliber. Uh, it also you know, boasts the fact that it was beaten up by Paul Blart Mall Cop at number one that weekend. Um, it was also the first R-rated film to be projected in real D technology and also get a wide release in 3D-enabled theaters, which, again, is nothing to shake a stick at when you're talking about a film like this. Um, the special effects, were, which I think are exceptional in this film, um, are done by uh, Gary Tunicliffe. He was the guy that did the special effects for almost all of the Hellraiser films, uh, certainly all of the sequels. He also did the effects for Candyman, uh, Wishmaster, the Pulse series, and Feast, another favorite of mine. And I think the effects in this movie look damn good, actually. There are definitely some half-baked 3D eyes popping out towards the screen that have that digital sheen that I dislike so much. But ultimately, the kills in this movie are the selling point, and I'll get into that a little further down the line. I think it's worth noting that uh, the director also pitched a sequel that he tried to get made, and eventually Lionsgate just kind of lost interest because the movie just didn't perform quite as well as they would have liked. They talk about how it would have gotten into the more of the psychology and the backstory of the survivors in this film, which good God, thank God that that did not get made because the story and the characters in this film are in an issue. This movie is best summed up as far as I can tell by the New York times review, which described it as the creaky screenplay is merciless, mercilessly at odds with the director's fine sense of pacing. I couldn't agree more. The film's redeeming qualities are deeply mired in a plot that rivals the soapy, rainy tedium of something like Netflix's Virgin River. The ending isn't so much a twist as a slightly squiggly but ultimately straight line. The sheriff has, bo- has apparently boned every woman in town, but he's married to our protagonist, who also has a romantic past with the is-he-or-isn't-he-killer good boy Tom and the sheriff also has a jealous streak, which leads to plenty of scenes that are more about swinging dicks than swinging pickaxes. But that said, when the pickaxe begins to swing, it does lead to more than a handful of gloriously gory moments and clever set pieces. The killer works here, and when he goes to work, he is given genuinely good direction. The frankly ludicrous cold open boasts an insane body count, though it's mostly haunted house-style prosthetic aftermath. And I really want to call out, there's a lengthy scene at a motel, which also features a shocking amount of full-frontal female nudity for a theatrical release of this caliber. But we really chase said nude from hotel room into a parking lot, back into another room, and along the way, skulls are pierced, a motel owner is impaled into the roof, And later, when the killer is wrapping up his cat and mouse game, he actually goes back and has to free the motel owner's corpse by retrieving his pickaxe like Thor's hammer, leaving the corpse to fall to the floor. And it's not only an impressive 
bit of horror theater, but also it's good for our nude, who's played by Betsy Rue and as the character Irene, who really turns like a TNA role into this feisty fight for life and death that's better than the arc that most slasher actresses get in an entire film. This movie is full of a lot of contradictions. And, you know, I'm digressing a little bit. But, you know, I would say that I like the original a little bit more. But this is a different film with its own qualities. And it still maintains that small town sad sack vibe replete with a bunch of cops who are way too laissez-faire about the mass murders happening in their town. Well, Rich, I'm really glad you highlighted that motel parking lot, that whole sequence, because I think that is the standout scene in this film. Even if I didn't put my finger on it until now, it is by far my clearest memory of the movie. And so I think that, yeah, you nailed it there. And I I think that's a fantastic, it's a defining set piece. Vic, what are your thoughts about this film? You know, John, watching this movie, I kind of thought, you know, John's really going to like this movie. Um, it, 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 is, it is a movie of contradictions, right? Like, I think that was a really good way of putting it. I, I said that this is, this is really a CW slasher as much as I know what you did last summer. I mean, Jensen Ackles was doing Supernatural. Uh, Kerr Smith was coming off Dawson's Creek. Megan Boone, who plays one of the Sheriff's Conquests, would go on to be the lead on The Blacklist. Uh, which I didn't quite realize until doing a little homework on it. Uh, and Jamie King goes on to be awesome in the Netflix zombie show uh, Black Summer, just as a as a uh, recommendation if you haven't watched that. <clears throat> um, but it's improved around the edges, right? Now, like I- I'm just the 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 violence and the kills and stuff. I think are really stylish. It's it's unflinchingly violent. It's creatively violent. Uh, again, there's way more nudity. Like I said, it's, it's, I know what you did last summer, but bordering on an NC 17 rating almost in terms of the, the violence and stuff. So that adds something to it. I don't know. They make, I think they make better use of the miners costume than in the original. The part of the problem with this, and this might even be part of the problem with the original, but like, there's so much backstory that they have to get through. Right. Like, it's like, there was an accident in the mine, and then Harry Warden did something terrible. And then Harry Warden shows up and kills a bunch <laughs> of people. And then you cut to ten years later. I liked the opening scene, but it reminded me of Marcus Nispel's uh, Friday the 13th remake, where it's like they crammed a small slasher film into the first 15 uh-huh. minutes of the movie. And yeah, the the whodunit is really clumsy uh, they try really self-consciously to throw you off track. I mean, again, the jealousy stuff with the sheriff that, that Rich mentioned. The climactic scene has one cool visual element, but it's basically like a Scooby-Doo episode. And uh, the final reveal, it's not as frustrating as high tension, but it's really problematic from a scripting and a narrative standpoint. Also, Tom Atkins still rules. I'm glad you mentioned Tom Atkins there, Vic. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't let that go, that yes, Tom Atkins is in this movie. However, I can't argue with a lot of your comments or or Rich's on the negative side. I'll just kind of share my experience with the movie and my feelings about it. One of my first jobs in PR for movies, which is what I've done about you know 30% of the time for about 15 years now, 
was that I worked on this movie and I had to do copious research into 3D films of the past because My Bloody Valentine 3D kind of kicked off the second revival of the original 3D boom. Uh, the first revival being movies like Jaws 3D, Amityville 3D, and of course, Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D. I kind of respected what I read in the press notes, interviews with the filmmakers, obviously Patrick Lucier, I think that's more the French pronunciation, but I don't know. I tend to overdo it on my pronunciations. <laughs> yeah, is he French? I don't know. <laughs> Rich never misses a chance to offend the French. <laughs> I'm guessing he's French-Canadian, but he could be actually French. I don't know. In any event... Um, in, in Chicago, it's Lucier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I kind of, uh, I dug it though. Like they were trying to do some cool things technically with the 3D. They're explaining the camera work and the moves and how that tied into the kills and the effects. And I dug it, you know, creatively what they were going for. And so then I saw the movie in the theater and I was pleasantly surprised by the output. That was not my cup of tea at the time. We've talked about this. This movie definitely fits more into the Kevin Williamson, WB slash CW style of quote unquote slashers uh, that are really aren't anything like the old school stuff. But I thought it delivered the goods for the genre while being effectively tongue in cheek. So watching this again a second time for our show during the selection process, I thought it really stood out as having the virtues of the second or third wave slashers when compared to the original films of years past. And by that, I mean, this movie has a fast pace and an eventful plot, an attempt at actual character arcs and relationships, the kind of thing that we often take for granted in movies nowadays. And I was still delighted by the balance of cleverness and impact in the kills. The swag of our towering gas-masked killer. And the amount of tension where tension was called for. Do all the convolutions of this admittedly overscripted plot completely work? No. Are these fascinating, multi-dimensional characters brought to life in stunning performances? Of course not. But based on what the movie is trying to do and what it offers connoisseurs of the genre, does it work? For me, yeah, absolutely. It's a slick and entertaining slasher that may not ever really leave a mark on you or the genre, but it sure as hell won't bore you. I feel like you're setting up for something, John. <laughs> perhaps, Rich, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, I would disagree with the assessment that it won't bore you. I was You were bored. bored. Really? You were bored. Wow. Yeah. yeah I, I would say entering third act, you know, like there's there's like a point where like two of the key characters, like, like what, once we're on like our fourth conversation about how like the cops like jealous because, you know, like, well, you know, like I have sex with her. Like the, just like the, the love triangle stuff was like so tired. But isn't this and movie like, fast paced though? I mean, like what, a, how does it waste that much time with that? I, I understand. I don't think that was great either, but it was, boring? it was burning. A, it was burning a lot. Like somewhere hmm. around the point where I think they were, I just remember they were on a bridge. Like I can't even remember the content of the, the dialogue, but it was like a yet another scene where like Jamie King and, and the Ackles guy 
are having some sort of lengthy piece of dialogue that ultimately is about like, why don't you believe me? And it's like, oh, is it because of your husband? Like, it's like, what? Like, why? Like, we had something. It's it's just like, how many times do we have to like recycle this, like this relationship subplot? Like, get to the, the that's the thing is that it, this movie, this is a movie that felt like a different director took over every time um, Harry Warden shows up. Um, and to me, like I was there for it. Like when when we were entering like a, a true like die in the wool like horror sequence, I was like I was down. And that that's saying something considering like every single kill in this movie pretty much is like a pickaxe to the head. Like like more or less. If it's an on camera kill, it was almost certainly a pickaxe to the head. And like that should be boring. And somehow they made it continually like engaging and surprising and like menacing. And that was like exciting, but then it was like interrupted by these like plotting scenes of these characters working out their, their relationships. And like, like that shit wasn't working for me. So it's like, there's only like half a movie here that I actually like. There's a lot of parts of your head that a pickaxe can go into. <laughs> oh yeah. There's all, all kinds of angles. You can, go on the, you can go on the top, you can go under the jaw, you can go on the side. I mean, if we're just counting orifices alone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's a few places that a shovel can go to. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, they did like one part of this movie very well. And also, I'm sorry, but like slashers have really spoiled me for the idea that if you are more than 90 minutes, you need to like earn that. Dude, this it's 11 minutes have, more than 90 minutes. It's, yeah, you know what? It's 11 minutes too long. <laughs> I was just literally checking the running time while you were on that initial diatribe. I'm like, wait, is this movie longer than I remembered? And no, it's a, it's 101 minutes. Uh, all right. I mean, look, okay, so you were bored by Maniac Cop. You were bored by this. Okay. Duly noted. I was bored by the first half, by the first half of Maniac Cop. Okay. Okay. I do want to point out, I have in my notes that I think I saw this in the theater. And so I think I probably saw it with you. I wouldn't have put that together until you said that. But I, whenever I, you two I, mention Universal City Walk, I know y'all were sitting side by side. <laughs> probably, probably high. That's, that's probably that's why true, we don't. Yeah. Remember. I don't think I saw a whole lot of movies. I don't think I saw a whole lot of horror movies at Universal City Walk without Vic. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's charming. Anything else to say, Vic, about this movie before I hand over the wheel to you? to drive through the wall that you are facing with <laughs> Wes Craven's new nightmare. <laughs> um, uh, you know what? I will say this. Uh, for me, the standout sequence was not the naked chick in the parking lot, although I agree she does sort of craft a, a feisty character with, with, uh, without much to work on. It was the supermarket scene with Megan Boone and Jamie King. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was tremendously suspenseful and, and really just kind of visually, I thought he handled it really well. And there's a, 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 when they get locked in the office and Jamie King is literally suspended in the air, pressing the desk against the door mm -hmm. while they try to get out. She spends a whole scene like that. It was really intense. I, I thought that was really well done. I, I, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to give one more shout out to my, to my, to my wife here. Sorry. Credit where credit's due. When, there's a character who is who is who is clearly pregnant in the film, and in that scene, I'll just go out there and say that that person that 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 character dies. But she dies, and my wife's comment afterwards was she goes, 
oh man, I thought the miner was going to like throw the fetus through the window or something. And I was like, Jesus, that's dark. (laughs) (laughs) You married well, Rich. I think we can all agree. (laughs) I mean, in some ways this movie pulls no punches, but yeah, um, it, it doesn't necessarily tap every vein of horror or it was a minor joke. I'm so sorry. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. Yes. Okay. Um, I think honestly, I, not to give anything away, but I feel like uh, we could have at least one more good conversation about this movie, but let's move on to the next film. The one it's up against Vic. I know you feel strongly about this. This is one of your babies. Tell us all about our number 10 seed, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. All right. New Nightmare, 1994, directed by the late, great Wes Craven. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. That's all right, John. Just just disrespectful, I'm just saying. Uh, Budgeted at $8 million. It grossed about twenty. Has an 80% score on Rotten Tomatoes, I'll point out. The logline that uh, that, uh, I think is really fascinating is essentially what if in creating a nightmare on, on Elm Street, Wes Craven actually unleashed some real demon on the world and it began stalking a Nightmare on Elm Street lead, Heather Langenkamp. So, without further ado, I'm going to start with this. Eat your heart out, Charlie Kaufman. Wes Craven made adaptation the horror movie before your agent ever handed you the Orchid Thief. And he rescued the good name of a franchise that had driven itself into a ditch with Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. That movie's a fucking train wreck, by the way, speaking of, of 3D movies. This story follows actress Heather Langenkamp as New Line and Wes Craven begin pursuing her for a new Nightmare on Elm Street film. And she finds that Freddy Krueger seems to be breaking out of the movies and into real life with his eyes set on Don Dylan. This movie is really distinctive in the meta category in that its awareness is more of its self-awareness rather is more of itself as a movie and not so much focused on the genre specifically. I think that's most of what we see in meta films, including Scream and the Final Girls. A lot of the movies that we've been talking about, they're playing with the conventions of the slasher genre. This movie is playing with the notion of its existence as a movie at all. And that really sets it apart, I think. It attempts to break the fourth wall and bring Freddy into reality, including cameos by New Line President Bob Shea, John Saxon, and Robert England as themselves, mostly, uh, and even a cameo by the maestro himself. Conceptually, uh, especially for the time, I think this is brilliant, right? Uh, This is one of the things that I always strive for when I am writing a horror film. One of the things I look for in horror films is how can you tear down the fourth wall in a way that makes me believe what I'm watching is real. And this was, again, for the time, it's the kind of thing that we've seen a few times now. I've referenced adaptation. But at the time, I'm not sure people, anyone had ever done anything like this, certainly not in a horror film. And I, I just think it's, as a, as a conceit, as a, as a seed, as a starting off point for a horror film, it's just, it, it's just brilliant. The execution comes up a little short. I think Langenkamp, Saxon, and especially Robert England uh, acquit themselves very well. I really didn't care for Miko Hughes, who plays her son Dylan. Incidentally, same kid that played Gage in Pet Cemetery. I think the special effects are underwhelming. It seems that they used some, some CGI in this that really didn't work. The climax doesn't really satisfy. 
But in between, uh, there are some terrific moments. There's some great uh, gory moments early on. There's some really clever appearances, the claw marks in things like cracks in the wall after an earthquake. There's a great reveal of a painting that Robert England has been working on in his spare time. And has anyone outside of Miss Cleo gotten more career mileage out of a telephone than Wes Craven? Quick side note, I did a little little research, and it turns out that Heather Langenkamp's husband is actually a special effects artist, although he's not the, the one portrayed in the movie. But I thought that was really interesting. Like, Craven really goes all out to try and, and and blend reality and fiction as much as he can in this film. And I think it's largely successful. I'm handing it straight over to you, Rich. I think I have less strong feelings about this movie than, than either of you. So why don't you go ahead? Okay. I'd like to see what you okay. can say. Yeah, sure. That, I mean, there's definitely a symmetry to that. <sighs> wow, Vic, man, I don't know. I don't know. I could be in a, on an island with this one, but watching this movie, you, you, you script, you scripted this. You wrote man, Vic. I don't know. Didn't you? I, what you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> You're damn right. Hey, I did. John, John starts his review of every movie that way. <laughs> Look, I mean, watching this thing again for the show, I was really struck by, Vic, how characteristic it is of my disconnect with you on some of your ride-or-die flicks. Uh, just This is a perfect example of something I can totally understand how you loved when you were a kid. I just don't see any enduring power that we need to honor 30, 40 years down the line. Like Halloween H2O, I think New Nightmare doesn't stack up all that well against any kind of competition, even within its own franchise. Yes, I will absolutely say the basic concept of this movie's take, it's the very definition of meta, and it has great arty horror potential. If David Cronenberg had explored this territory, look out. But as with Fear Street 78, my problem is I don't think the words on the page work. I think they're painfully uninspired and pedestrian. Even before we get to the style of filmmaking, which is dreary mid-90s, mid-budget schlock. For example, that Frogger sequence on the LA freeway is Birdemic level embarrassing, in my opinion. There's two things that this script could have done to pay off the promise of its premise. First, you could have made it more naturalistic. If it felt like we were actually watching the real people who made Nightmare on Elm Street 10 years later, that would have had tremendous power. Like a quasi-documentary found footage approach or even just 1970s American independent film level realism. We've all seen a hundred movies that have an unscripted quality in the dialogue, a verisimilitude and authenticity in the acting that fool us into thinking we're just watching a doc or even real life. Nope. This movie maybe moves the needle 5% in that direction from its predecessors. But generally, I think the character interactions are as stiff and stagey and fake as any other average movie from the period or the decades prior. 
the other thing that Craven could have done on the script level here would have been to actually accomplish something I think he's actually trying to do, because I don't think he's trying to be more naturalistic. He could have said, you think the Freddy you remember was scary? That was the Hollywood movie, Freddy. I'm going to give you the real timeless, primal, and terrifying Freddy that inspired me to come up with this motherfucker in the first place. Damn, guys, sign me up for that. If that was truly what he was going for, look out. But no, this isn't the darker, more brutal, more disturbing Freddy that could up the ante on the whole franchise to a another level of horror. No, I think that the only thing that this film accomplishes in that department is Freddy's look is more serious. It's more demonic. Yes, it's less human. I admit that's a step in the right direction. But what really matters is that in execution, this movie is 90s TV-level tame and pathetically derivative as well of, its, of itself, of its predecessors. The scare scenes are weak and toothless. Initially, the focus on this new claw that, you know, the sort of, you know, I don't know what it is, biomechanical claw, it's somewhat successful, but it quickly becomes as repetitive as most other dynamics in the script. And Vic, you referenced this, like the claw's tentatively poking their way through walls or betting, mostly betting over and over again. For me, without any rhyme or reason, it just doesn't, it gets tired quick. And it's funny that the claw murders two FX guys in the opening scene. But from there, for the most part, a stuffed T-Rex holds them off until the end of the movie. And don't get me started on Rex as an inexplicably ever-present and important element of this ludicrous plot. I think the film steadily heads downhill from a pretty decent first act. And by the time we get an embarrassing self-ripoff of a kill involving a woman being attacked on the ceiling, yeah, you know what I'm talking about from the original film, and this is a watered-down, lame imitation, at that point, it was clear to me that this movie is only going to recycle imagery from prior installments in the franchise. And not only that, it's going to do so in decidedly watered-down fashion. The ending is a new low that I will spare you analysis of in a non-spoiler discussion. Vic even acknowledged that it's weak, I think, in his comments. Suffice it to say, Freddy's defeat here in this movie represents a truly comical lack of inspiration or even basic cause and effect as a screenwriter. It's a ridiculous chain of nonsensical events. If somehow this goddamn movie makes it to the next round, I'll tell you more about it. But in summation, I am proud to say that I walked out of the damn theater dissatisfied with this movie in 1994. I didn't hate it, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like... This is the movie I wanted. It certainly gained no ground for me in the intervening years, and I think it looks a whole hell of a lot worse now. I think, on a, this is going to blow my own mind, but I think I like Fear Street 78 more because this movie's vanilla pudding. I certainly prefer that movie's ending, the way it handled the win or loss of its two lead characters, the, the sisters. At least that ending showed some balls and a drop or two of earned emotion. If you'll forgive the pun, I think 
New Nightmare is sleepwalking to a pat conclusion. You know what? I think Wes Craven's New Nightmare is a great cure for insomnia. And that's about the nastiest thing I can fucking say. John, stop equivocating. Tell us what you really think. (laughs) Don't soft that lip for me, all right? Give me the real good. I'm not, forgi- I'm not forgiving either of those puns. <laughs> you love my puns. <laughs> okay, Rich, uh, man, it's all you, brother. Take it Oof. away. <laughs> Come on, Rich. We can make him watch it again. <laughs> Come on, you. <laughs> I think you both make really interesting points. And I think you're both, in many ways largely right this is kind of a tough one for me i skipped this movie in 94 i think i was really burned by the late entries into the series freddy's dead as vic described is just just deplorable trash and i think like one of the things that maybe soured me on this film as the credits were rolling was how much the third act feels like it returned to what made Freddy's dead such an awful film. There's a certain quality just to the, the look of the visuals. Once you get into Freddy's world that I really blamed on new line, I feel like new line has a quality of, of effects and a look of horror that they were okay with at the time that they should not have been. <laughs> and thankfully it only really rears its head toward, towards the, uh, towards the end of this movie. But I will say like, I think I arrow a little more on Vic's side of the equation with this, this film, especially like you said that the first act is pretty strong. I mean, like this thing does get big points right off the bat for taking a big swing when you put it in the context of its time period, I think you're right. If it got re-released today and it was being watched by modern audiences who weren't exposed to it, I don't think it would make a whole lot of an impact. But knowing like where it was at the time, I look at this thing as being sort of an inbred cousin in the generation between the player and Mulholland Drive. And while you're an inbred cousin, like you're still in pretty good company there. And that's saying something like these people who are trying to like probe like the dark edges around Hollywood and storytelling and the, the blurred line that gets created when artists try to touch darkness. I mean, like that is a, you know, this is not the, certainly not the first time that that idea was explored, but I think that they're doing an, an earnest go of it. And I'll say that, you know, Vic mentioned this as well. Like, I think the performances are are very strong, which is more than I can say for My Bloody Valentine. I thought Heather Lagenkamp was, uh, was pretty solid for an actress who had mostly, you know, made her way on my understanding is kind of like middling network TV shows since her appearance in, uh, in the original nightmare. Wait, 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 wait. You're saying she's better than the people in my bloody Valentine that did like, that there were the stars of hundreds of episodes of shows. She's better than they are. Ackles and the other guy. I think, I think, I think, I think, really Vic's nodding. 
in the context of this film, like I think she does a better job. I think also like she's being given better material to work with. And so that makes her job a little easier. Now I will say her husband, like given the same material, I don't think does, um, does a very good or, or believable job. And I definitely take issues with the script, especially when it comes to, you know, let's just say, uh, unfortunate things happen to her, her husband and she takes it pretty well. <laughs> she does. In terms of like character development, like, <laughs> I will say that, like, when things take a dark turn, like, she really just kind of rolls with it and seems to have, you know, like, her, she only has one interest. It's settling the score with Freddy. You were dead on, John, with your assessment of the, the freeway scene. I actually think the freeway scene is the scene that sticks in my mind about this film the most. That and the playground scene that I also think is kind of dreadful. Uh, you mentioned the, the playground scene. I mean, this is kind of a my child has a problem movie, although the exorcist or something, you know, you, you said she wants to settle the score with Freddie, but you know, the movie, the paradigm, this movie is really tapping into, I think is the, there's something wrong with my child. Don't you think, or, or no. It, that's certainly an element of it. I wouldn't say that that is the, like the thing that this is trying to tap into, but it's certainly the way it's, it's, it's Heather's, characters like um way into this story uh for sure like that that's how she's like that that is the danger that that alerts her to needing to like address this the fact that something's going on with him but then like i would i'm really struck by there's that the first like i think like really like crossing the bridge like meta moment is the net the scene that follows that and, you know, in the, and in the terms of the scene, I mean, like, this is midway through the movie, so this isn't, like, a spoiler. It's like, you know, Dylan is, like, up, climbs up to the top of, like, too, too high on a piece of playground equipment. It scares the hell out of mom, and, and he, he falls off, and, you know, Heather catches him. And then, then later on, there's a conversation about, like, well, Wes is writing this script, and, and the script is about you, Heather, and, like, it's about real life and like how far has he gotten? Oh, he's gotten as far as, as Dylan touching God or talking to God. I can't remember which one it is, but it doesn't matter because like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, By the way, that scene like, has nothing was, to do with Freddie at all. Right. That's like, what I'm saying. Yeah. It has nothing to do with Freddie. Uh-huh. It's not like the whole, like he's like talking to God or trying to touch God. Like doesn't seem to like correspond to the plot in any other way. Like I don't understand what the meaning of that is. So it's either totally underdeveloped or it's just kind of like flailing with like, how do we communicate this idea that there is a, a the, that this film is essentially like a script unfurling itself in real time. And so like, I think they're, they're kind of dealing with that, making that connection in, in clumsy ways. But then again, they're trying to make that connection, which is just an inherently interesting idea. Um, and one that is, you know, as Vic Apley points out, is, is ahead of its time. Wait, um, always, let me just really quickly point out that the, the, the conflict between these two films that we're dealing with right now, the choice we have to make are is between, is a film whose reach greatly exceeds its grasp, but is clearly more ambitious in what it's trying to do, even though if some of us, maybe all of us to varying degrees agree, it fails, is that more worthy of further study and scrutiny than a movie that is not aiming that high, but could be argued, makes some fun choices and is a more entertaining watch 
along the way. That's just kind of to reframe where we're going with this vote. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for for me, I think you're. I think that sums it up pretty well. I, I agree, and especially I mean, the other thing I'll say is, having watched, you know, fifty or sixty slasher films in the last several months, I am more inclined now to be taken with films that are reaching for big ideas and are 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 doing something beyond the the traditional tropes of the slasher film because killing people and convincing a woman to run around a parking lot naked for 45 minutes is not an artistic skill. Look, I I understand that, but sometimes like the devil is in the details and just like the little like weird yes sometimes trashy choices that movies make i think are part of what make horror movies fun and interesting even if like yeah they're not curing cancer but there's something like you know quirky funny intentionally or not intentionally funny that that make movies worthy of of looking at and i just find new nightmare other than like if you really want me to I mean, you think the knives are out now. If we go another round, I will break down in you know painfully meticulous detail what I loathe so much about it. I mean, I guess that's entertaining, but I'm not I'm not delighted by this movie at all. And as even though it's much much more pedestrian conceptually, I'm more delighted by bloody my bloody valentine and i feel like actually in terms of being scary as you both uh, alluded to there there are some good set pieces that i would rather you know give attention to to me just trashing the 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 vanilla pudding of this movie so that's that uh, of uh, new nightmare so that's where i'm at but you guys you two are obviously going to decide you know my vote so hash it out do you hear that Rich, he's, he's threatening us. He's threatening us. <laughs> just, if, you know, if, it, we, it, if we vote for Wes Craven's new nightmare, do you know what John Evans is going to do to us? Yeah, the, the, the hell, the hell that he will the run. Hell. Um, hell hath no fury like a podcaster scorned. <laughs> I, I, I think you will find, John, if you go back in the archives, that historically speaking, every time you make these kind of threats, you come back in the next round with like a bunch of like things that you feel like you underappreciated on the first few viewings. Like, oh no no no! I know you're right, I Rich. Think, you, I'm sorry, think, I'm sorry, Rich. You were 100 percent true, but I can promise you because I just watched this movie two weeks ago. I will not be watching this movie again. Uh uh-uh. <laughs> uh. Vic, what's your what's your vote? I mean, I think John summed it up. Perfectly. At, and again, a lot of it has to do with where I'm at psychologically, having watched so many of these films. Like, Vic, do you really yeah. think, like, I, I, had, I felt the same thing, but I felt that in favor of My Bloody Valentine 3D, in that, like, I had watched so many of these, you know, really plotting average slasher films that I thought felt like this one, it's got some juice to it. It's got some life. This is not an example. We're not putting a new nightmare up against the prowler or madman or, you know, one of these like just dreary first wave slasher movies. I think this movie is 
reasonably um, talking about, of course, My Bloody Valentine 3D. It's, you know, a reasonably well-made movie with, you know, interesting topical points of discussion. I don't think it fits into that category. I mean, I think that's a, uh, here's what I think. I think these, this is actually perfect pairing in this sense that what's going on in my bloody Valentine from a, a dramatic narrative standpoint is a love triangle between Jensen Ackles, Kerr Smith and Jamie King. And I would rather get shot in the face <laughs> than then invest in that love triangle again. I liked, I liked the love triangle in the first my bloody Valentine more than I like this one. Okay. But you're right. Can I interest you in a Tom Atkins? It is, it is more stylishly directed and, and the kills are, are much more creative and, and it's much more violent and, and there's a lot more nudity. I don't think but, that's here. And that's but, not what I'm voting but, for. I can tell you that right but, now. That's not what I'm but, voting for. But that movie has rocks in its head. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fair. It's got rocks in it. All right. Yeah. New Nightmare has, aside from I think the first act, it has no kills or violence uh, uh, that that really work. It has uh, no nudity at all. I don't think. And there's a lot of failings uh, on the on the things that would qualify it specifically as a slasher. But it's got really big ideas in its head. Like they do, they juxtapose really really well and if you if you juxtapose those things for me as a horror fan as someone who watches horror films i'm gonna go with the with the the things that have bigger ideas in their head there's not enough of that in slasher films as a genre that's what i'll tell you after watching 60 of them there's not enough big ideas there's not enough people thinking big and how can what can we do uh uh to to use this this genre to communicate big ideas and to ask big questions. I think it can be used for that. And so I'd rather see somebody swing for the fences and fail than somebody, you know, bunt and easily make it to first base. It's my last sports analogy, folks, I promise. (laughs) I highly doubt that. (laughs) Rich, uh, looks like you're going to decide this one. You guys have both put up a real good fight for both of these films. I'd say that these are two films that when the end credits rolled, I felt a little disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think maybe the difference is that in the first two minutes of My Bloody Valentine, I also felt a little disappointed. Whereas I felt engaged by the first 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of, of New Nightmare. You know, that said, I'll also say that we have to go back to what this competition is about, which is about we're trying to find the best slasher film of, of all time. And you're right that there is a issue here that that New Nightmare is not an especially good slasher movie. Um, whereas my bloody Valentine, like that is the one area in which it excels is being a very good slasher movie. Ooh, I'm getting a little excited here, folks. <laughs> but then you also have to think about the fact that like, and blame this on the process. This is the meta category 
of slasher movies. Oh, shit. And I'm not going to judge just strictly based on the fact of whether it's not meta or not, but what's meta about My Bloody Valentine 3D? My Bloody Valentine 3D doesn't have anything to say about slasher movies or to contribute to the overall critique of the of the genre or its or its forms. And... Mm, you just have to look closely to see that. <laughs> <laughs> It's not screaming from the premise. I I just love this whole discussion is just John's direction going up. (laughs) Right. I mean, I feel like I'm I'm a pollster in a swing state listening to voters, and I'm like, oh, we got you, we got you, we got you. Oh shit, no, we don't. (laughs) At at the end of the day, I gotta go. Like, I mean, this is why we broke these things down into sort of like sub, sub, sub categories, right? I like this is important. Like, there, there are different ways to sort of view this genre, and like, you need the strong contenders for those for those sub genres. And I'd say, like, I, I need. I'm not saying it's going to beat it, but I like, I need someone who can get in there and fight with like against Scream because God help me, <laughs> if that movie is going to make it terribly far in the competition. I don't know. If this is the one, but like. At the end of the day, like, Rich, I, I don't know if this is going to influence you at all, but uh, Scream's got my Scream has got my vote versus New Nightmare. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> I think that's I think that's I think that's pretty clear. Um, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go New Nightmare. All right. Um, I I I, you, I think you you John you put up a really good argument. I think you made me appreciate the film a little more than than I did to be to begin with. Uh, and I'm sorry, I, I did have a lot of respect for it, but uh, uh, yeah, even even at even at, at at 12 minutes longer than my bloody Valentine, mm-hmm. I would still rather watch New Nightmare again. Well, at the at the mention of Scream, John, I, I have something that I think will will make you happy. Uh, I was going to text this to you guys, and then I thought, no, I want to save it. I want to tell the guys in the podcast. So I was watching uh, a guy named Bob Chipman does uh, video reviews on mm-hmm. uh, YouTube, and uh, he was reviewing the new Scream movie, and he had this line, which which really uh, made me think of, of both of you guys. He said, if disappearing up your own ass in meta-commentary <laughs> was a magic trick, then Scream would be David Blaine. <laughs> Genius. Yes. <laughs> By the way, apropos of nothing, I, I watched the first half an hour of Scream 2 last night, which we are going to be dealing with on our show soon enough, and I haven't watched it since the theater, and I was liking it. So I'm just throwing it out there. You're not going to hold me to it or anything, but um, I there's a possibility I like Scream 2 more than Scream 1, but we'll see. We'll see. All right, all of these are conversations to be dealt with uh, in the future. All I'm going to say is um, I am I am pained once again by you two and your fucking poor taste in movies. No, I'm just kidding. It's fine. It's fine. I get it. I do. I do get it. All right, let's move on to the next matchup. And here we go. In that one, we have Psycho Two, a four seed in the old school department or uh, regional, which of course, these are the classics. These are the movies that are that laying down the blueprint to be deconstructed in the future. 
and Psycho 2 certainly fits the bill. It's a four seed, and it's squaring off against the legendary Toby Hooper's The Fun House, which is the underdog here, a 13 seed. So, Rich, tell us about Psycho 2. I know this movie uh, made an impression on you while we were uh, choosing films for this tournament. Let's, uh, let's dig into it, shall we? All right. Well, Psycho 2 came out in 1983, directed by Richard Franklin and written by uh, Hatchet 2 alum Tom Holland. Um, <laughs> by the way, real quick, Tom Holland is right there <laughs> with Ted Raimi in dominating this tournament so far. <laughs> well, at least the first round. <laughs> He's been a presence. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> It, of course, features uh, Anthony Perkins, uh, Meg Tilly, um, Robert Legia also uh, play, plays well into it. Always happy to see that guy pop up. So the story here is that Norman Bates is back out of the sanitarium after 22 years, um, never having been convicted of murder. And now he is sure his mother is, in fact, dead after the events of the first film. He is befriended by a down-on-her-luck waitress, and then the murders begin again, leaving Norman to wonder if Mother is back. With all due respect to David Gordon Green's Halloween, this is the real trendsetter when it comes to sequels that pick up with the original story 20-plus years later. It's worth noting that uh, that Hitchcock's daughter, Patricia Hitchcock, actually gave her blessing to this film— and said that her father would have loved it. Um, obviously, he had passed prior to its uh, to its production. You know, a couple of interesting tidbits, like you know, picked up and looking around, is that Christopher Walken was in, was at one point considered to take over for Anthony Perkins, uh, but Perkins did resume his role of Norman Bates, uh, and Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, was originally sought for the role of Mary, eventually played by Meg Tilly. Uh, a decision to which I think was probably wise on the behalf of the production and JLC herself. Some other little fun facts. Any visitor to Universal Studios or Halloween Horror Nights buffs such as myself in the Los Angeles era, area will know that the Psycho House still stands on the back lot and can be visited sometimes for photos with Norman. That is the set for this film that was recreated here and still stands. And as one can expect from a film like this, it got a very polarized response, varying from Variety's accolades of impressive to the Washington Post's travesty. Regardless, it was successful enough to spawn at least one true sequel, Psycho 3, while there were many, many other progeny that were more arguably attributed to the original film, such as Psycho 4, The Beginning, uh, the series Bates Motel, and others. And when asked for his thoughts in 2015, writer and, of course, Hatchet 2 cannon fodder Tom Holland replied, we should have called it something other than Psycho because it had no more than a passing resemblance to the original. What we did to Norman Bates and Lila Loomis was criminal. Outside of that, it was wonderful. So even the Whoa, people involved. By the way, that's to... a huge, huge statement from what I think is a pretty dedicated and faithful 
continuation of the series. That 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 comment is news to me, and I'm sorry, Rich. It just kind of blows me away that he would say that. That that he would say that. That he would the the writer of it would essentially repudiate his own adaptation and and essentially say it should have just been a spec with another name and it, it's not a worthy continuation of of the film that it's following. I mean, I agree with you there. Like, I think that's like we don't need to get in the the weeds of it just yet. But like, I I do think that that's interesting because I think that it in it furthers the the work itself outside of just being like a, a psycho sequel. Now, that is a that is a you know a pull quote that I'm getting from my research and and I'm taking that out of context from like whatever the the original body that mm-hmm. that he was uh he was talking about. So like there there could be more to that statement than exactly what's there. But suffice to say that he is at least like recognizing that he has some regrets about its role in terms of like the canon of this this storyline. Fans of the podcast may recall that I was called out for ranking Psycho, uh, the original, below Psycho 2. And I am sorry to disappoint you both here, but let's just say that I was wrong. <laughs> I feel like I was I was very very wrong. Throw those stones, I earn them. But Psycho Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Psycho is obviously better by the length of a forty foot Victorian staircase. <laughs> but I will say that this film, Psycho Two, with its pot boiler plot and its greasy theatricality, is not without its charms. Like its predecessor, I do think it's a long stretch to call this thing a slasher in the way that other films in this competition have earned the title. But putting that aside, I do kind of like its serio-comic tone, or at least I think that's what it's going for. It's a little slippery in the way that it's trying to deal with its characterizations, and it frequently goes over the top. Without getting too close to spoilers, let's just say that that gaslighting in the modern parlance is key to the plot. And that to me is actually a pretty genius Hitchcock double entendre. I think Meg Tilly's performance is pretty incredible. I think that Anthony Perkins, while not quite the stone cold sweet as a lamb psycho that he is in the first film, does an impressive job of picking up in this role where he left off. And I see shades of this performance in something like Dexter where psychosis later becomes both a catalyst and a burden to be wrestled with out in the open as the character develops. The plot itself definitely gets a little tedious, especially in the third act, whose twists and turns really outstay their welcome. But ultimately, this movie gets on by being kind of a cartoon version of Hitchcock with Tilly's insane character work, outrageous dialogue, and much more suspense than slashing. Wow. Well said. Well said. That's a, that's a fantastic overview of the film. Vic, do you have anything to add or should we just like clap Rich on the back and say good work? <laughs> I mean, that was, that was an okay overview of the film. I don't know if it's fantastic. Now you don't need his vote anymore. You're going to throw him under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, John, it's interesting. So you you referenced uh, Quentin Tarantino's championing of this film, which I guess you, we somehow encountered in different places simultaneously over the last uh, over the last few weeks. So I was listening to his interview on 
uh, Eli Roth's History of, of Horror podcast, which I highly recommend if Eli Roth isn't the one conducting the interview. He was conducting this interview, and there is nothing as embarrassing as listening to Eli Roth just fillet Quentin Tarantino for 90 Yeesh. minutes. Uh, he, like, he literally just changes his opinions to like mimic Tarantino's, or he like backs off anything they disagree about. It's just it's so cringe-inducing. Anyways, uh. but predictably... Tarantino doesn't think much of Hitchcock or Psycho, but he loves Richard Franklin and some osploitation flick that he did with Jamie Lee Curtis, incidentally, called Road Games. Have you guys ever seen this? Oh, hell yeah. I love that have movie. You, good? Yeah. I've never seen it. In no? fact, we probably should have considered it for the tournament. Oops. <laughs> so, well, Quentin Tarantino will turn off the podcast at this point. <laughs> uh, unless Eli Roth is fondling his balls. Anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, so he he really he really liked Psycho too and Richard Franklin, which I just I think it was just only Quentin Tarantino would go on a podcast and be like, you know, I think uh, I think Alfred Hitchcock is overrated, but I mm. love Richard Franklin. Have you seen Rogue Games? Stacy um, Keach, yeah. by the way, and uh, if I, am I not am I crazy? I think. Jamie Lee fucking Curtis. Yes, it is. It is yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis who also discussed it on her interview for the History of Horror podcast with Eli Roth. Except she literally like barely remembers doing it. Yeah. Look, I'm not like, going to say like, it's like a genius movie by any means, but it, it's yeah. certainly notable. The the trick to me, the trick of of making Norman the hero and getting us as an audience to root for him is pretty impressive. And like that's. That's the thing that they set out to do with this movie, and it works. And to that degree, it is unequivocally a success. Like, the fact that you could take the serial killer from Psycho and make him someone that I, as an audience member, am invested in, I mean, that's... I, I will give it up to Tom Holland for his writing uh, more than his acting. But I agree with Rich. I thought Meg Tilly was really charming in this. I also the body count and the gore are, are like it's it's well done. This is much more of a slasher film, I think, certainly than the than the first one. But I also feel like it it somehow detracts from the movie. The idea that, that this movie introduces cannon fodder, like these two kids that break in to have sex in the basement, yeah. it's like it's like beneath a psycho film to do that. I don't know it, it, that that somehow took away from it, even though again, the kills themselves are, are actually kind of impressive. Um, I also agree. I was really looking forward to seeing Anthony Perkins in this. He was fine. I thought he did a good job. He's got a weird arc and, and he kind of makes it work as best he can, but he's not as, charming and likable at the beginning of this as he was charming and likable at the beginning of psycho. So it, it, that, that performance part felt like a bit of a step down, but he, but he is good. Like, I, again, I don't want to take anything away from him uh, to come back to this role after so many years is, is, is pretty impressive. And well, again, I, I think he's, he's great. I think of, he's great. I just want to say right now, I'm sorry. I think he's great. He's part of selling that idea of making Norman, someone that we're invested in and, and we want to work in it. Like that doesn't work for you. No, it does. Mm -hmm. He's part of that. He's part of making that work. Got it. Listen, John, Got it's, it. a, it's an audio medium. You have to listen. <laughs> no, but you're also <laughs> criticizing him. So like, okay, but you're, you're it saying was, he's not as charming. Well, he's not 18 he years was old. Not as good. He was not as good as he was in psycho, but he was still good. 
I thought there were the, a lot of the, the nods that they did. I thought they did really well to the first film. There's a great beat when he's going to give uh, Meg Tilly a room at the beginning and he starts to reach for room key one and then stops and goes back and gets room key six. Now that that kind of stuff I really enjoyed about this. So it's it's not bad. It's not a bad film. And you're referring, of course, he gave room key one to Marion Crane in the first movie, and the, the peephole is in that room. That's the point you're making, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I love his performance in this, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance if we're not just bogged down talking about shit movies like Nightmare, uh, Wes Craven's new Nightmare. In the next round, uh, we can talk more about the nuances of this of this film and uh, its performances. But I was delighted to watch this movie for the first time 10 years or ago or so uh, with zero expectations. Our, our for- former co-host, uh, Mike Kuchek, and I used to binge horror movies with this dude uh, who was the story editor at uh, Stan Winston Productions back when uh, Stan Winston was alive. I guess maybe, I don't know, it could have been more than 10 years ago. But I was like, you guys want to watch the Psycho sequels? Really? But I was glad I did. I'm glad we did watch these movies. I had never seen any but the original one. It's actually quite the saga if you if you watch all three of them or four of them, I think. Anyway, I've only watched them the once until now. And I rewatched this sequel. I had almost forgotten how good it was. But it reminded me. It's just a treat. The games that it plays with the audience as far as who and what we're invested in, what we're rooting for, how we feel about what's happening. I think it's very sophisticated and contradictory. It's a psychologically complex and stimulating watch, which I think we can all agree you can't say for the average slasher movie. So I am going to somewhat withhold comments, hoping that we can dig into this because I would love to watch it again not to telegraph my vote at all before we get into me introducing the next movie (laughs) (laughs) so let's leave it there for now Um, let me tell you about the fun house which in no way do I hate I'm the reason this movie is in our tournament I believe yeah I don't think you guys were sticking up for it in any meaningful way Directed by the legendary Toby Hooper, The Fun House is a direct answer to the first wave of slasher films to pick up the mantle of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween. Uh, Most specifically, Friday the 13th, uh, the original had just come out and uh, this movie was, you know, trying to go toe-to-toe with it in 1981. It had the tagline, pay to get in, pray to get out. Not bad, not bad. It starred Elizabeth Barrage, Cooper Huckabee, and Kevin Conway. Elizabeth Barrage is known for roles in Amadeus and the John Larroquette show. She also married the highly recognizable 90s character actor Kevin Corrigan. She's not worked in a while, but she's certainly a charismatic screen presence in the funhouse. For me, she kind of had sort of a Katie Holmes thing going on, if you remember her. 
four teenagers, this is the log line here, four teenagers visit a local carnival for a night of innocent amusement. They soon discover, however, that there is nothing innocent or amusing here at all. Who will survive and what will be left of them? Oh, no, sorry. That last bit was from <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre's tagline. So, yeah, Hooper's work on this film helped him get the gig to direct Poltergeist. However, its impact, I think, was muted because it grossed less than $8 million worldwide on a studio budget. I think it's Universal put this picture out. And Variety's uh, review said, for all the elegance of photography, the pick has nothing in particular up its sleeves. And devotees of director Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre will be particularly disappointed with the almost lack, almost total lack of shocks and mayhem. And uh, I can't entirely disagree with that. I think that though the movie seems to be using the TCM playbook with its psychotic familial duo, one of whom clearly shares DNA with Leatherface, while the other evokes the cook, the movie lacks its predecessor's dramatic intensity or masterfully building pace. It's more like a real-world funhouse ride itself. There's moments of surprise and alarm, some of which are unsettling. But for the most part, this is a slow journey through a strange, colorful world filled with quiet menace that never quite yanks you from your seat. Still, I do appreciate the movie's unique rhythms and generally convincing, even grounded approach to its scares. I would not be averse to spending more time within its labyrinth. Rich, what do you think about it? Three words. Monster hand job. <laughs> I can't think I can't yes. think of another film in this competition in which you will see a monster get a hand job. And for that, my hat is off. That aside, yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting. I do want to call it, first of all, I had the same reaction. I was I was just very charmed by Elizabeth Berridge in this film. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know her from anything else. Um, but in that, in that, like, that wide spectrum of, like, girl next door final girls, yeah. um, there's something about her, like, sort of, like, doe-eyed naivete in this film that just works better than the other doe-eyed naivetes that that I've seen in other movies. And so I really enjoyed her and like, she kind of like, she carried me, carried me through, you know, like, and she was also a good counterpoint to the sort of like, I don't know, kind of banal, uh, boorishness of the, of the, the bros that were, that were with her, like her, her date at at the carnival. Like I did not find them to be especially charming characters at all. And they, you know, nor were they there to be that, um, they were meant to be picked off. And so like the the slow pace at which the, these characters got picked off was a little tedious and, and I guess disappointing. I, I like the the shtick of the, the the carnival barkers all being played by the by the same character actor who's uh, sorry, my the, I did not have his name handy. That was Kevin Conway, I believe. yeah. You know, so like I, I like that element of it. I thought that the cinematography actually was was kind of interesting, and like there's some there's some interesting angles that they get within this like very limited space. I was struck immediately by like there's there's several scenes that take place in like a fan duct, 
um, where they're they're sort of just playing with like shadow and lighting and these these scenes where like not a whole lot's happening, but it still manages to be visually interesting to to look at. But yeah, the kills are pretty weak. It's it's annoying that the the teens themselves are literally defending themselves with uh, with the prop axes and knives that they pull from the funhouse, which just makes zero sense. Unless the psychos who are running this place like actually like populated with actually sharp axes and knives, there's a whole subplot about the the parents of Elizabeth Barrage's character trying to retrieve her and like her little brother being outside the the, the funhouse that goes kind of goes nowhere and sort of like there's nothing to buy in in terms of like the parents having anything at stake in terms of finding her considering that like as they're attempting to retrieve their daughter they're also talking to a bunch of weirdos who are like massaging their face of their son there's just no sense of urgency to bring anyone home in this movie it also has a climax that happens in a in this like machine room which is is kind of cool in like a, a campy way, but it also goes on forever. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was I was mostly familiar with this movie from the video box itself, which is which is funny because this is a classic case of like the 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 image that you get on the video box, which is like this sort of like leering clown um, who appears to be like the the slasher in this movie is just is is looming over the the funhouse, and that that clown is nowhere to be seen. Um, in this movie and so like that kind of sums up the feelings in general is like this movie feels like a bit of a bait and switch yeah i thought i had notes on this movie maybe i don't but i distinctly remember commenting that the climax in that um room at the end felt like when you're on the universal studios ride and they're like mm. everything's shaking and all this chaos is going on and things are breaking, but you know it's all like carefully calibrated hydraulics and nobody's gonna get hurt. <laughs> yeah. And that's how that ending felt to me. It, it did not ring true at all. Uh, Vic, take it away. I, I have a couple of thoughts on this, and I, I'm gonna start from the end of Rich's comments and work backwards. I think the first thing I want to say is that. I too remembered the box of this. And so when this when this came up on our list, I really thought it was Clown House, the Victor Salva uh, film. Yeah. And I wasn't sure how I was going to react to that. Uh, if anyone knows, Victor Salva is a, a, a fairly prolific and look like in a in an, a perfectly objective sense, like not terrible horror director who just happened to be convicted of molesting one of the stars of clown house when they were a, uh, a teenager. Best known, uh, so, best known of course, for films that uh, you enjoy the Jeepers. Well, I, I, I honestly, I could take early Jeepers Creepers. I think Jeepers Creepers two is a minor masterpiece. Anyways, I, the point is, I was really like, I was like, oh, God, like, are we going to have to talk about this? And then when it was, like, directed by Toby Hooper, I was like, fucking A, all right, great. That's so much better than directed by Victor Salva. Uh, have any of us seen that movie, by the way? I have not. Clown House? Yeah. I've never seen it. Mm-hmm. I, I saw it when I was a kid, just trolling the the uh, shelves of, of the local video store for horror films. So I don't remember much about it. So the second thing I want to point out is that, and I'm rich. I'm really glad you brought up that climactic scene in the like machine room because our, our character arrives in the machine room by like crashing through a vent to get into it. Right. And then she proceeds to go around the room to all of the doors that 
are all locked from the inside. So how did anyone ever access this space? <laughs> Wait, how do you know they're locked from the inside? Then she because could unlock them if they were locked from the inside. The, there, there are there are padlocks on the door. Oh, okay. On okay. The inside okay. of the yeah. door. Yeah. <laughs> it was very it was very confusing. I did not understand. The other thing I, I want to say to to both of you is I just because I seem to be on such a different page with you guys uh, throughout this series, this is exactly what I wrote. Amy is possibly the worst, least interesting, most boring and ineffectual final girl we've had so far in this tournament. (laughs) Wow. I mean, she has nothing on the wooden acting of Heather Langenkamp, I guess. John, I will not stand here and listen to you. I will not sit here and listen to you besmirch the fine acting of Heather Langenkamp, who, by the way, uh, Heather Langenkamp is starring in Mike Flanagan's new show, uh, The Midnight Club, based on the novels of Christopher Pike uh, that's going to be on Netflix. And I am over the moon excited for that. I desperately tried to get my agent to uh, get me in touch with Christopher Pike because I wanted to adapt some of his books. They were my favorite when I was a teenager. But neither here nor there. Anyways, the point is, no me. wonder you love R.L. Stein so much. I don't like R.L. Stein. Christopher Pike was better, John. You keep assigning <laughs> me categories that I don't quite fit into. Uh, I also want to point out I am something I am increasingly frustrated with in this franchise is I'm going to call it a trope where the boyfriend is grappling with the killer while the girlfriend stands there and like watches and like making <laughs> screams, but she's definitely not helping and like yeah. and they're long scenes of like the girl just standing there watching the boyfriend eventually get murdered. it's funny though that you say that i mean just in the sense that i i believe that generally anyone would say that slasher movies have done more to advance the idea of women as heroines as any other subgenre in cinema is that not correct i i would agree as long as the heroine herself is under threat if her boyfriend is grappling with Jason, she is cowering in the corner, uh, staring at a gun or a knife or a machete and, <laughs> and not picking it up and not doing anything to help. Well, that's a notable exception that we should probably, yes, document and look at how, how, that, yeah. how that plays out. Yeah, for Keep sure. Keep your eyes, because I know I've seen that. I didn't make a note of it, but I know I've seen that a few times thus far. Uh, I do want to say, too, the makeup effects in this are really good. Yeah, uh, yeah they are. I, and I thought that Hooper really wisely lets that cat out of the bag early on. It's not like Michael Myers or Jason, more specifically Jason, where we get it right at the end. Like, oh, we're gonna now we're gonna show you the horror yeah. under the mask. Like they're like, no, the the horror under the mask is is really kind of the best part of this. So so here you go. Rick Baker is credited as the designer, but not the creator of that. Uh, I believe John Rick. No, were you there? Did you and I go see? Rick Baker talk after uh, American Werewolf in London? Yes. Yes. Is that us? Anyways, I, mm-hmm. I, I vaguely recall him talking a little bit about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hated the B story with the brother. Uh, it, it sneaks out of the house and goes to the carnival and then uh, gets picked up. That doesn't pay home. off. Yeah, that doesn't pay off. Yeah. yeah I, uh, my, my line here, I'm quite proud of this. I haven't been so bored since Dick Halloran flew to Denver, rented a car, and barbed <laughs> Snowcat to get up to the Overlook. <laughs> but I do want to point out that that character is another slasher trope, which is he 
is yet another kid obsessed with classic monster masks and models, a la Corey Feldman, and of course, uh, Final Chapter, and not a slasher movie, but I believe the Salem Slot adaptation from a couple years earlier. Like this is there. There's definitely the oh yeah, the kid who's making the. I know the brand name is famous to people who grew up in the seventies, but I don't remember it. You know what I'm talking about though? Like that's, that's a trope of these films that, Oh, well, yeah, he's got rubber masks and, and he's got models and he's into all this scary stuff. But yeah, but, but, but to what end? Like that's the thing about, well, this movie, it doesn't, doesn't pay off at all. Yeah. Right. There's, there's, there's zero payoff to it. Right. uh, Anything with them. There is the other thing I think that that is interesting. At least it's at least weirdly coincidental, given the movies that we've talked about in this show. The opening scene is an homage to both Halloween in the 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 long tracking shot, the POV, the boy eventually puts on the mask and then finds his his sister in the shower, but also to Psycho. Mm-hmm. Some of those shots of the 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 knife going up and her in the shower. They're literally shot for shot takes from uh, the shower scene in Psycho. Uh, so I think Toby Hooper knew very much what he was doing with that. But that's a lot of homage in uh, in a short scene. Yeah, it's funny that these movies are head to head. Again, another weird synchronicity of the pairings that was completely unintentional, I can promise you. Yeah, and, well, and that we, we, I mean, Halloween was the first movie we talked about. Tonight, yeah. Yeah, this show has had a lot of uh, commonalities, most of them being your guys' poor taste in films. But uh, but yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> I'm still burning a little bit. Come on. Okay, well, how are we going to suss this out, gentlemen? Uh, I think the best way to, to frame this is uh, I know it's not going to be the most dramatic of conclusions, but I've telegraphed my... My my viewpoint, I am not going to do a uh impassioned defense of the funhouse. I, I I think that the movie is certainly notable, but I honestly I have a I'm Jones in to, to watch Psycho Two again. So somebody just like devil's advocate, is there any reason we should vote for the funhouse? I will say that Kevin Conway gives a real performance in this. Yeah. And John, you mentioned the the, the twisted uh, sense of family that Toby Hooper brought to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think is here, both in terms of the relationship to the the carnival. The first thing that Kevin Conway, the I think he's just credited as the the Barker. The first thing that he says when he realizes that his son has killed the psychic woman is, you kill one of us? And then and then, even deeper than that, then you have the familiar relationship between them. I absolutely love the scene when Kevin Conway is trying to convince his son that he needs to kill the, the rest of the teenagers. And he says, you know, it's not like you ain't done it before. You know, you know what they'd have done to you in Dallas uh, if I hadn't helped you out. Those the the Memphis those those two uh, Girl Scouts, man, mm-hmm. that was the worst. 
the worst. And it was like, you really did. Like, I really came out of that scene being like, wait, what did he do to the Girl Scouts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, but it was like, I mean, it was, you could tell that it was like, it, it had traumatized him and that like cleaning up after his, his son's murders has like completely sort of twisted him into this, this sort of deranged person. So I, that's, to me, that's the standout scene in the movie, uh, aside from the makeup effects. And that would, if there was a reason to vote for it over Psycho, that would be it. Uh, but I, too, am going to vote for Psycho. Great observations there, Vic. I'm glad you mentioned that. I also, I really don't think that it should be overlooked. Monster hand job. Yeah. <laughs> I, I believe, Rich, the, the, that Psycho 3 is subtitled Norman Gets a Hand Job. <laughs> well, that that is appealing, Vic. I was I was gonna go I was gonna go for the line that Monster Hand Job was actually the original title of this podcast. But... <laughs> I have to admit, I would love to pour over that scene in great detail with you two. <laughs> it is it is incredibly it, it it does have a very humane awkwardness to it. Yeah. Like I will say that you you kind of empathize with with that character mm-hmm. um, and or creature to to some extent. Like it feels like a victim of of circumstances as opposed to just sort of like a, a purely like like evil entity. Well, he feels yeah. like an adolescent, like a, you know, just a prepubescent or just on, you know, yeah. nascent pubescent having a really embarrassing experience. Yeah. How do you not sort of, how does that not humanize this character? But well, that's, that's what makes the Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein imagery sort of relevant is that that's mm-hmm. the, that's the parallel that they're drawing and, and do, I mean, I would say they do sort of successfully. Like it's, you have more sympathy for this, for this killer, I think, than, uh, I mean, not than Norman Bates, but, uh, uh, more than you would think going into a movie like this. And obviously this is a non-spoiler discussion. Some people probably haven't seen this movie. The guy literally wears a Frankenstein mask for a good portion of the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's the, there's the Frankenstein poster on Joey's wall. And there's a, at some point there's a clip of them watching, uh, Bride of Frankenstein. But yeah, I, I do think that the, the, the action that takes place within that room, which is like, I think he's like, he's like bedroom presumably for him mm-hmm. and Kevin Conway's like shared bedroom is like the, and that's the same scene that you're talking about, Vic. I mean, you're talking about a later section of it, Blake, that is the, the central drama of this film and the rest of the trappings of it that mm-hmm. are sort of classically slasher film trappings actually, I think are where you get let down a little bit. And like, and and ultimately, I feel like that's kind of what this movie does is let you down a little bit. That's a point that I think we're we're hitting over and over again. I'm also going to place my vote for Psycho Two, for whatever that's worth. Well, it's just interesting that the the psychic woman, the palm reader character in this movie, finds herself in a scene we don't see those characters. In and it's a, it's a strange juxtaposition of oh it's this person that we saw in that scene and somehow she's in this scene and yeah it just makes it all the more disconcerting somehow and you're right it's very interesting and uh, yeah I wouldn't have pushed for this movie to be in the tournament at all if I didn't find it interesting but I do think that uh, the way it all breaks it 
breaks down here, it should exit stage left um, so that we can spend more time on Psycho, which I promise you I will watch again for our next, uh, its next matchup. And I also promise you I will not be watching New Nightmare again. So fuck y'all on that one. <laughs> unless, unless John, I we Rich and I break into your house and tape you to a post and then put needles under your eyelids. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, like um, Dario Argento's opera. Indeed, that's right. I would much rather watch Dario Argento's opera any day of the week and twice on Sunday. That's that's what's known in the biz as a callback, John. It's a, it's a callback to an earlier episode. You're nothing if not a professional, Vic. Speaking of which, we're going to wrap this up, and I am going to go back and tune into the end of Deep Red, which I am midway through right now. Nice segue, because next time on March Mad Men, we have the following matchups. Deep Red versus Intruder. The original maniac facing off against Slumber Party Massacre. And Hellfest. Dukes it out with Freaky. Vic, any farewells and final thoughts from you, sir? Boy, we're really into the thick of it now. Uh, I think that that we're, we're as we move forward, we're getting a little deeper into the genre. We're really finding some deep cuts, and I really like the way that things are coming together. I feel like again, these 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 pairings bring out some interesting ideas. And uh, I'm really just glad that we were able to to disappoint you so thoroughly, John. <laughs> yes, yes. You you when never I, cease to amaze me. <laughs> and disappoint you. Yeah. Uh, I, and I j- want you to know that I, <laughs> I, I wake up every morning and I watch uh, Fear Street 78 just every day. You know, uh, your brain is going to be nothing but pudding within uh, vanilla pudding, just like uh, New Nightmare before before long. So, good luck. <laughs> All right, well, that's our show, folks. It's time to go. We don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. Until next time, tell your friends about this show, tweet or post on Facebook or whatever the hell it is you would do to share the fact that you recommend the pod for folks like us. That's the best way to ensure we're always here with you, sharing your love of fucked up films. Until next time, for Vic and Rich, I say farewell, fellow March mad people. Adios! Adios!